This is Working the Beat. It is Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. I'm Kevin Cooney along with Mike Kern. Glad you could join us as we begin the second month of quarantine. As the um, some promising news, obviously, on the coronavirus front um, with hospitalizations and everything down, but still, here we are as we contemplate what the future will hold. And Mr. Kern, how are you? You, you know what the, the next, th- this is the way I see this, Kevin, because May 1st is obviously a date that a lot of people, you know, are talking about. And we've seen Trump and Fauci, you know, on TV recently. Mm-hmm. But I think the next big thing in all this is going to be the power play between the president and the governors. Yeah, that started already. Um, so, And it's kind of funny to me because, and I, I'm not, I, I don't want to, again, make this, you, you think of Trump, what you think of Trump. I think he's done some good things. I think he's done some things that weren't, that could have been done better. But in all, a couple of weeks ago, he basically threw a lot of the onus on the governors in the state. Now he's taking it back. I, well, yeah. Now he's like, trying to take it back. Right. He wants, he always wants to like never take the responsibility when something doesn't go right. And yet it's going to be really interesting because I was reading a story and I don't know <clears> the constitution. It was basically saying, no, the governor's right is to it's under the 10th Amendment state. Right. And, you know, we see so many things around the country, like, you know, the, the guy in Florida who, who I, yeah, I, I look, there's not a one size fits all option. On no, this. no, 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 no. That you have but, to find a way of gearing it a certain way that fits yeah. New Mexico and Florida and places that may not be hot spots as opposed right. to New York and New Jersey and DC and Philly is if you have a place that is relatively clean, so to speak, and you don't do enough. And then that suddenly becomes, look, we got to come back. Mm -hmm. We have to come back. It's not going to be a a switch. You're not going to flip, but at some point, probably in early May, I'm guessing we got to start bringing some things back and hope that people are uh, sensible enough not to overdo it. Yep. And that we don't have, and, and, you know, there's probably a way that we can kind of do this with minimal danger, I guess, is if that's the right word. I, you, but there are certain places in this country that aren't going to be ready. Yeah. And we might be one of them. Well, we'll you talk know? We'll talk more about this, actually, uh, when we get beyond our interview here. Uh, our interview today is with Todd Zalecki, our buddy who uh, covers the Phillies for MLB.com uh, and has a great book coming out. I know it's great. A it's coming out um, and I've already pre-ordered it on Amazon. Um, and I know how much work Todd had, you know, I'm talking to Todd last year when he was writing it, I know how much work he put into it. And uh, we'll talk to Todd about some of the details of the book on Roy Halliday. The, the title of the book is named doc, the life and times of Roy Halliday. You can pick it up on Amazon or wherever you can pick up books. Hey, Kevin, so, let me ask you a question. Yes. You, you cut. So Roy pitched four seasons for the Phillies. Is that yeah. correct? 10 and, 10 and 11 are all-time good ones. 12 and 13 were injury-prone. So how do we treat him? I always have this Oh, he's getting his number retired, but... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, and I'm not sure he should, but he's, he's going in the Hall of Fame, so, and, and, so I guess that's the reason. But, like, I always have a problem with athletes that don't play a long time, but yet we're great. You know, like, we, we only saw Dick Allen for five or six years. I think Dick Allen could have been one of the greatest. And, and he's almost a Hall of Famer. He may get in the Hall of Fame someday. Right. Mostly for stuff he did after he left the Phillies. But 
And there's always those kind of athletes that come through our sports sometimes. Um, I'll, I'll give you one. Kirby, Kirby Puckett's a guy who I always had a tough time judging because Kirby Puckett was, or Don Mattingly, both were really good for short periods of time. How about, how about Gail Sayers and Dick? One's Buckus? in the Hall of Fame, one's not. Go ahead. Gail Sayers and Dick Buckus. They both played about five or six years. Gail Sayers was, was one of the great running backs right. for, for that fight. And then he got injured. Dick Buckus, one of the, the all-time linebackers, but then his career was cut short also. I would say I think they're, I think they're both in the Hall of Fame. Right. I, I would sure. say that Halliday, Halliday's prime of from 02 to 11 is among the best of all time. Right, I mean, but as a Philly fan, how do we treat that? You know what I'm saying? And, and that's and that's the thing. Like, you know, I, I are there people I think they should have retired the number ahead of on him? Yeah, because but, of he contra- the, but he did make the Hall of Fame. That's kind of their criteria. Yeah, their criteria is, but he did, he went in without a Phillies hat. He didn't go in with a Blue Jays hat okay. either. But okay. like, I I really think he deserved it down the road. But uh-huh. to me, Rollins, Utley, Howard, for their you. importance in the history of the organization, not just that two year window. But I would go. But I understand them. both sides. They have a rule. Their numbers are they? Unless I mean, they'll get into the wall, the hall, of, the, wall the wall of fame. fame. But I don't. I think Rollins and Utley have a shot. I'm not sure Ryan. I'm not sure Howard does, and that's the problem. Like, how do you take one or two, but not all three? I, yeah. See, in and my what do you mind, do with Hamels or right? You know, like, other guys. Growing up, Steve Carlton to me, and Robin Roberts. I never saw Robin Roberts. Obviously, he was dumb, but I mean, he was obviously very. He was great. Um. Steve Carlton to me is the best pitcher in Philly's history, and and nobody will ever. He was one. He's one of the best left-handed pitchers in history of Major League Baseball. Um, I don't know if Halliday is one of the best right-handed pitchers. Certainly of his generation, there, there's no doubt about that. You can make but the argument. Coach, you can make the argument. Halliday's 2010 is the second best pitching year in Philly's history. I won't argue with you. Um, behind behind lefty in '72. The shame to Halliday of me is we didn't get him in 2009 oh because they were trying to get him, right? They were. Yeah, and they ended up with Cliff Lee, which wasn't a bad consolation prize. And Ruben Amar did a good job in getting Lee at that point. And everybody right. everybody criticizes Ruben for trading Lee. Them the fun. There were pressures there. I've heard that wasn't his call. That Yeah, it wasn't his call. From everything I've heard that he wanted to keep both. And yeah, they were worried the about the farm system getting totally depleted. One of the strangest days in my fandom. And you were still the beat writer then, right? You, I was were, I was part of the beat crew at that point, yeah. You were part of the beat crew, okay. Randy and I, I shared heard, the beat at Philly. At, uh, the I heard courier. the news that they were getting Halliday. I went nuts. I said, because they just... And then an hour later, they were trading late. An hour later, and I... I it was about 10 o'clock at night, too. I remember <laughs> screaming. Yeah. And I'm like, what? basically, they just traded Halliday for Lee, which... Okay, I, I understand that. Lee was great. And, and, and But you just put this staff together, and I'm guessing in 2010 they might have won it. I, I'm, I'm just guessing. I've often um, made the argument, and we'll talk about this after the Todd interview. I often made the argument that 2010 is the bigger blown opportunity than 2011. 2011, they were running out of gas at the end. Uh, right, but they did win 102 games. They won 102 games, but they also lost like eight in a row that September. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were beat up 
a little bit. Obviously, Howard with his Achilles, which blew out later, but he, he had issues. Too, wasn't he? Utley, was Utley was hurt. Yeah, there. You know, Blanco couldn't hit the ball out of the infield. He should have been. He should have never started Game Five. But that's a whole different. But who story. would they have put in? Well, they they, the they had Wilson. I think was it Wilson Valdez was the right, but they, they had no bench. Basically, the the bench was done. Yeah, and Worth was done by then, right? He was on the Nats on eleven. Yeah, yeah, and eleven. Two thousand ten to me. Looking at that giant team, I agree with you. I think that plus they would have killed the Rangers in the World Series. It would have absolutely killed the Rangers in the World Series, and it boiled down to. You know the, the Cody or uh, Cody Ross in Game One, and it boiled down to not being able to hold the lead in Game Four, and that was it. That was the and Game Six when they chase Jonathan Sanchez out early too. So. Well, and in 2011, if they'd held that four zip lead with Cliff Lee, you know they they right. would have won that series too. I don't know if they would if that team would have had enough to win the championship. I I don't know. In fact, we'll get on that topic after we talk to Todd. So uh, right now. Uh, on Work of the Beat, coming up next, it's going to be Todd Zalecki. He will talk about everything uh, involving the Phillies, where baseball is going to go at this point uh, as we look towards the potential resumption of the season um, or the start of the season, uh, maybe in Arizona, maybe in Florida, maybe never. Uh, but that's all coming up. Todd Zalecki, the author of Doc, uh, The Life and Times of Roy Halliday, and from MLB.com. He's next here on Work in the Beat. Looking to reach the sports fans of Philadelphia in a brand new way? This is Kevin Cooney. Each week, the Working to Be podcast with Mike Kern and I brings the hottest topics into this sports crazed town with the people and the events that shape the landscape. Now, your business could connect with those people by advertising on the Working to Be podcast. Join us at 267-546-7277 or email us at workingthebeat at gmail.com to find out how you can reach out to this growing audience. It's the best sports talk in Philadelphia, and you can be a part of it. That's 267-546-7277 or workinthebeat at gmail.com to join the Work in the Beat podcast family. And joining us now, the author of the new book, Doc, which will be coming out in May uh, about Roy Halladay, uh, already pre-ordered on Amazon. Todd, I should let you know. And... Uh, the Phillies beat writer for MLB.com and for uh, before that for the Inquirer. Discovered the team now since 2003. It's Todd Zalecki. Todd, how's uh, how's life in quarantine? <laughs> life in quarantine has has been interesting. Uh, just like like for everybody, I guess. Uh, trying to you know work without baseball, even though I write about baseball for a living. I was just telling my wife last night. I said, you know, the the Phillies right now should be playing the Brewers this week in Milwaukee, which is you, my hometown. I was just going to say, so, you would have been going home. Yeah, I would have been going home. I told her, say, man, you know, if this, if none of this was going on, I would have flown to Milwaukee on Sunday night. You know, I'd be like. You'd be eating that special sauce on the hot dog? Yeah, I've been having the special sauce on the on the hot dogs and the bratwurst and the Polish sausage. And, you know, at Miller Park, they have in the food room there, they have these, uh, they have, basically have them all free, free of charge. So. It's not a good week for the diet for me, but I try to take advantage of it while See, I can. See, when, when you're a retired person or semi-retired, whatever the hell I am, you don't have to worry about any of this. You just sit at home and watch TV for 
12 hours a day and wait till they get betting back so I can do stuff for better insider. Exactly right. It's so, I mean, it's just so weird, like being home and not, not going anywhere. Um, and then, you know, from my work point of view, from my work point of view, just, uh, you know, trying to find things to write about and, you know, trying to try to make, trying to make sense of all this and try to keep people entertained from a baseball point of view again, without any games to, to write about. And, and that, I find it amazing reading the inquire online. And I know Kevin reads a lot more than I do to keep up with what's going on. Just the amount of ideas you guys can come up with. And many of them are, re- I know sometimes you just, I need to write something on Tuesday. I got to come up with something. But a lot of these are really good stories and I'm amazed it's a month in now and people are still coming out with good stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's really kind of forced you to be a little bit more creative, and, and it's kind of surprising what people like and are interested in. You know, so at our place, we're doing these um, top five position players. You know, uh, at every position in, in Philly's history, and fans are really liking it. You know, they're re- they're reading it, they're debating it, they're calling me an idiot for putting this guy second over this guy at third. You know, in the third spot and. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I called up Larry Boa and I said, um, you know, hey, there's a lot of parents and kids stuck at home right now. Can you come up with some infield drills for me that they could do maybe like in a hallway or in a basement or in the backyard? And and he not only did he do it, but he sent, sent me a couple like instructional videos. So, you know, just just some things to hopefully take people's minds off of what's going on right now. Just give them a little bit of a break, even though, again, it doesn't replace the enjoyment of going to a game or watching a game on TV. Yeah. Seeing Boa and Charlie Manuel doing social media videos like they have been has been, well, you know, they did the the conversation with each other a couple weeks ago. Right. It's been like the most fascinating thing for me because, you know, here, here are two guys who are pretty tech savvy that we weren't quite sure about before this. I'm not sure if you felt that way. And and you know what? It's, it's cool to see guys like that, like Boa and Charlie, because, uh, they have such strong personalities, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're allowing it to kind of shine through a little bit. And, and um, you know, for anybody that's been to a Phillies game the past couple of years, they have, they've kind of had Boa and Charlie play these um, like kind of different games in between innings. They show them on the scoreboard and they're entertaining to watch because they're really good friends mm-hmm. and they're both very funny and they're both very sharp. And, um, you know, so it's kind of cool to see, like, you know, behind peek behind the curtain a little bit at, at two Phillies legends. Let's be honest. Would you, we have seen that happening, them becoming really good friends back in 2004? 2004, no. No. 2004, no. <laughs> when Charlie's but, in the food room. <laughs> yeah, Charlie's in the food room and everybody's speculating that Charlie's going to replace Larry as manager. And, and then, of course, then it happens. Uh, but now – you know, Charlie was in the hospital. He had a big health scare over yep. in the off season and, and Larry and his wife, Patty were at the hospital two, three times a week, the entire time that Charlie was in Philly checking in on him. And, and they talk all the time. And when they talk, they talk on the phone forever and because they just love talking baseball and just, just talking to each other about whatever's going on in the world. You know, and something Todd, I guess, looking forward when this is over, or you know, so part of our new norm could be you guys doing more stuff like you're doing now, just because maybe people like that that you would have never thought of doing before. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, 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 I think in a, in a sense, it's kind of 
it's good to kind of flex that creative muscle, I guess, in your brain, because during the baseball season, you do get caught up so much in the routine of it. Um, in fact, I was telling my wife the other day that in a sense, well, especially working at home with two young kids, mm-hmm. I said, in, in a sense, I feel like I'm working harder now than I would be during the season because during the season, everything is so routine oriented. Yeah. The game starts at seven. So for people that don't know, like I would get to the ballpark around two 33 clubhouse opens at three 30. You're in the clubhouse until four talking to players from four to four 15. You talk to the manager, you go upstairs, write your notes, you eat dinner, you watch the game, you go downstairs and you read the manager and the player come upstairs, rewrite your story, your game story. And then you go home. It's all kind of the, it's all kind of like set up for you perfectly where now you don't really have access to players. Uh, you know, it's, it's really scarce. So you have to really come up with cool, interesting ways to, to write about, to write about baseball. And you write, Mike, I think, you know, like Matt Breen and Scott Lauber, uh, at, at the Inquirer, um, Matt Gelb at the athletic, Matt, Matt, Matt Gelb and Megan Montemoro at the athletic and, yep. and Jim Salisbury at Comcast or uh, NBC Philly. They're all coming up with these really cool ideas where I'm going, Oh man, I wish I had thought of that. That would have been a good story, <laughs> you know, but, it, but it's, but you're right. I think maybe we'll see more of that down the road. Todd Zalecki joins us. Hey Todd. All right. Let, let's get to the nuts and bolts of, of the, the situation, I guess at this point is you know, you've heard the Arizona plane, you hear the Arizona, Florida plan. Is any of these realistic, or is this spitballing right now? By Kevin, the Kevin, why don't you just lay out the plan a little bit so people? Maybe all right, aren't all thirty teams go to Arizona and you play there, or mm-hmm. you split up among spring training sites. You get rid of American and National League, and eventually the winners of the Cactus and the Grapefruit Leagues play in the World Series. That's the plans. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of this is everybody just doing their due diligence. You know, the the kind of way I was thinking about it is like. Uh, around the trade deadline, somebody will write some report and they get all hot and bothered. The Phillies have contacted the Angels about Mike Trout, and then everybody yeah. will go crazy. They have, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, you wouldn't be doing your job if you didn't at least check in on it. You know, like it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Doesn't mean there's a shot in hell, but you have to at least explore all opportunities. Um, now, I think the possibility that games are played in Arizona or split between Florida and Arizona is more likely than the Phillies trading for Mike Trout. Yes. But the point being is that they're talking about everything because they have to talk about everything. They have to try to figure out, okay, how can we salvage a season? How can we make this work in the middle of a pandemic? How can we keep everybody safe and not just players safe, but, but managers who might be in their, you know, in their late sixties or coaches or, clubhouse personnel, whatever, right? Like you have to make sure everything is, is thought about and having all the teams in a central location, Arizona makes sense. How you play games, 80, hundred games in 115 degree heat. I don't know how that works. Um, but I guess if it means making money and not making money or and not and playing baseball versus not playing baseball, you'd have to kind of try to muscle through it. Uh, you could have expanded rosters, um, and know. we're talking, we're talking no fans, right? In, in, we're talking, yeah, in no either fans. of these scenarios. In either of these scenarios, we're talking no fans. Maybe I suppose there's an outside shot that if things miraculously turn around, that there could be fans in the stands at some point. I personally don't see how that's possible this year. But it's uh, also Florida, Todd. So you never know what the Sanus is going to do. 
You know, he <laughs> he declared wrestling an essential uh, uh, service. So yeah, he wrestling essential service. Of course, I saw yesterday a couple of days ago. He was like touting this hand sanitizer that has no sanitizing capabilities to it. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I I don't I don't I don't know what to say about him, but but uh, but so the, the long and short answer of it is is everything that they're talking about is is like a is a possibility. But anybody that says they know what's going to happen, I, I don't believe them because while there seems to be some encouraging news coming about the curve flattening, et cetera, we don't know what it's going to look like two months from now. You know, if all of a sudden businesses start opening up, it could, you know, the the, the curve could go back up, right? But but certainly they're trying to do what they can to save the season because it, I think a lot of people want to see it. Is there a drop dead date re- realistically for them? You know, I, I don't know. You know, everybody says, like, oh, what would be a legitimate season and what would not be a legitimate season? I mean, I guess for me, you would want to play at least half a season, so, like, at least 81 games. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, now certainly you could have somebody – Some a lot of people would say, well, that's not a real baseball season, so whoever wins a World Series, it's not legitimate or not. But, I mean, I, yeah, I guess you could that, – that could be a debate that could go on forever – and ever and ever and ever, which is fine. But would you rather just, you know, not play at all? You know, if you can't play a hundred games, I, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, if you could play at least 80 games plus have a, a postseason, maybe even in an expanded postseason, I still think it would be better than nothing. And you know, pl- I, you know, certainly you can't have a 30 game regular season and then they have a postseason. That would just be absurd. But I think if you could play a good half season and plus a, plus an extended postseason. That might be fun, and I think people people would know why it's happening. You know, it's not like right. they're just doing it willy nilly. It's because it's not a, it's a, not a work stoppage. It's not labor. It's right. It's not a horse tournament. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so you know, I think people would be more open minded to something like that this year than it would be if all of a sudden baseball just said, "Hey, we're going to cut the season down to eighty games, and we're going to have." you know 15 teams make the playoffs and you know we're going to drag it into you know November and da 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 I mean I think people are people are are pretty understanding of what's now, going could on Could we all that. assume that if they came back whatever whatever form they come back in quarantine the whole bit whatever if somebody tests positive at some point it's a shutdown whether it's an umpire a player or whatever whomever I never thought about the 60 year old managers but that's a great yeah. point um does that then immediately shut it all down again? Well, if you look at what happened in Japan, so the Japanese league was supposed to start up, I think, you know, I, I, all the dates are blurring together because there's the Taiwanese about a week league. ago. Right. Yeah, there's the Taiwanese league, the, the South Korean league, and the Japanese league. They were supposed to start up soon. Three players tested positive on the same team, and they basically shut it down. Um, so that is the the big trick you know i was talking to a former player recently and he said so what happens if they start up again in spring training or the season starts and a couple players from the phillies test positive he's like you you got to shut it down you got to shut it down you know or or if you try to quarantine a certain bunch of players in the team how do you fill out the rest of the team now there's been ideas like you know you have like a 50 50 person traveling squad um, to cycle players in and out, if that would happen, you know, again, everything that there has been, everything is kind of being discussed and mentioned as right. a possibility. But yeah, but um, it was like in the NBA, if you, if you played three teams, 
those three teams, you know, it's not, not just your team you're talking right. about. Right, that, right that's yeah. where the problem comes in. Right, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, even if you have – that's why you've even heard stuff. I, I think it was in The Athletic. Ken Rosenthal was talking about, like, uh, you know, implementing the robot home plate umpires, umpire. you know, because that would lessen the risk of some of these umpires getting coronavirus – uh, or, or spreading it to other people if somebody else has it. You know, it's, it's how how do you make sure that all these players don't get it? That's the whole quarantine issue of basically putting everybody in isolation. You, you basically, every player, every team person, whatever, would have to go from the hotel to the ballpark, and that's that's basically your existence for three to four months. Now, would everybody go for that? I don't know. Well, and, and the other part of this that I've been thinking, and, and you're right, there's so many unanswered questions, but let's say they start in July, okay? And, right. and which means you really have to get going by June 1st so you can get pitchers stretched out and have a three-week or four-week spring training again, you know, part mm-hmm. two. Are the minor leagues going to start back up? Are you going to have access to, to players who would be normally playing at Lehigh Valley uh, to fill injuries to, you know, I mean, I know rosters are expanded this year and they'll probably get expanded through all this, but we know even in the course of just the daily grind of a baseball season, you're going to go eight, nine deep beyond the normal roster, you know? Right. So that's you can't, you can't quarantine minor leagues, Kevin. It's, it's, I, that, but that's yeah. a that's a problem. It's a logistical yeah. concern. Yeah, but like right. they, like like Todd was saying, though, you expand the rosters to let's say an enormous number, you know, fifty if that's a number you want to throw out. So you would have those players available yeah. instead of playing at Lehigh, they'd just be sitting on your bench down in Clearwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah you would almost have to have like a you know, kind of like in the postseason where they have yeah. you know, they, well, they they wouldn't do that in this case, but you know, in the, in the postseason, the Phillies would have a couple pitchers in Clearwater just throwing, just in case they a couple pitchers blew out in the postseason, they could then shuttle them back up. They'd have like a third string catcher that would be kind of a bullpen catcher in the postseason. You know, like Lou Marson was that guy in two thousand and eight. wasn't on the postseason roster, but wow. he was with the big league team. Uh, just in case Chooch got hurt, they would have somebody in game shape that could step in and play. So yeah, I mean that's why I was saying like. You know, you almost could have like the entire forty-man roster plus some some of the non-roster guys, almost all make the team. Now you would set like a twenty-six-man roster, and then maybe you could shuffle guys in and out as they build up arm strength, or you know, you would just have backup options ready. And there's some thinking that the union would go for it because if you had a forty-man roster of guys making you know whatever their salaries are. That that would mean more guys are getting paid. So why would you say no to that? Guys, so that, guys that... will be pulling hamstrings. <laughs> yeah, there will. There will. I don't care. I mean, I guess if you have a, a month long spring training, I guess they would be in fairly decent shape. But you yeah. know, how many are still in Clearwater right now? Do you There's know? There's only a handful. I think it's Andrew McCutcheon, uh, maybe Tommy Hunt. So basically, what I was told um, a couple weeks ago, I think it was a couple weeks ago, week and a half ago. It all runs uh, together at this point. What's that? It all runs together at this every point. Every yeah. day is every day. Every day, yeah. It's Groundhog exactly. Day. Today is Tuesday, but it's not. It's just today is just a day and ends in Y. That's it at this point. But I think uh, I, I what I what my understanding is that the only players in Clearwater right now are the players rehabbing from injuries. Anybody that you know. So in other words, Reese Hoskins is back in Philly. Bryce Harper is back in Las Vegas. 
Um, right. You know, if, if you're healthy, you're home. If you're injured, like Andrew McCutcheon, you're you're still allowed to use the facility to rehab. How yeah. how like before all this happened? What was your sense of where they were as a group? I mean, they played pretty well down in, in the Grapefruit League, but it's the Grapefruit League, so you right. kind of shrug your shoulders and go, eh, you know, the lead inning subs and everything. But there were some positive signs coming out of it, wasn't there? There were some positive signs, and and I'm not saying that in a well, I think this team was going to make the playoffs because you never know once the season starts what's going to happen. You know, on on paper they're the fourth best team in the division. You know, well third now third with Sinas with, Sine- with Syndergaard, Syndergaard yeah. So third or fourth team, right on paper, but I, I thought t- this season was going to be fascinating if for no other reason than how much can a good manager and a good pitching coach make in terms of a team success. <laughs> You know, Joe Girardi is a, in my opinion, a, I think in the opinion of most people, a better manager than Gabe Kapler. Um, he's more organized. He's more of a, I don't want to say disciplinarian, but he, he has more structure. I think that lacked uh, the last couple of years. Um, I think he runs a better bullpen than Gabe Kapler, which was a complaint that some relief pitchers made this spring. I think uh, Brian Price, the new pitching coach, I think the starting pitchers, they were over-the-top excited to work with him this spring because he's a real pitching coach. He can look at mechanics. He can see what you're doing wrong. He can say, hey, uh, you know, your changeup's not really – have you ever thought about this grip? And he can show him a grip, and he can say, hey, this is the changeup that Jamie Moyer threw. And, and, you know, this is the ch- – and this is what Jamie was thinking when he right. threw it or whatever, you know. Like, uh, you know, he has experience. And so uh, the starting pitchers were excited. They they were confident in the new pitching coach. The relief pitchers were confident in the new pitching coach and the new manager. And I think just the just the the um, the structure, the routine, the urgency of Joe Girardi was going to make a difference. Again, not saying that that meant they were going to go 92 and 70 or whatever and, and make the playoffs, but I think they – were going to be in a better position to win this year than they would have if Gabe Kapler and Chris Young had returned. Well, Brian Price had a low bar to clear to get better than Chris Young. Let's be right. Honest. Yeah, I mean, he, he was. I mean, it was <laughs> that was just a that was a disaster. It was, it was a bad decision when they made it, and it, you know it, everybody's kind of fears. I think were just confirmed as the season went on. Uh, uh, Mike, Todd, if if you were, and I know it's way too early, and a million things could change in the next week, but what? Do you think, if you're putting your best guess on it, are we going to see any baseball at all? Are we just going to see baseball that might have to run in? Maybe, a, like you said, a 60-game, 80-game schedule, which I think would be better than not playing. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'll take the 60 games. I don't care because there's going to be an asterisk next to it no matter what they do. Right. But do you think that, there, that we're actually going to see baseball, or do you think, that the country will just maybe relapse a little bit when we start to open up and people will get fearful that maybe we can't really risk it. Yeah. I think it depends on how the whole country responds to this thing. If people start getting too cocky and start going out again and, uh, and it flares back up, then maybe that seals baseball's fate and really not only baseball, but hockey, basketball, the NFL season. I mean, can you imagine, you know, I can't imagine going to a football game in a no. seventy-five thousand no. stadium this fall. I, I just wouldn't. I would not. Or college and a hundred thousand. Col- yeah, yeah, college and a hundred thousand. So my, I I would never make put money on this, but I guess if I had to bet on it, uh, I wouldn't feel great about it. But I would bet that there is going to be some games. I just think that 
both the, the league is, is super motivated. And I think the players union is super motivated to try to come to some sort of agreement or some sort of way to make this happen. Now, again, if the, all of a sudden the curve shoots back up, then it might be a moot point and, and you know, they'll just have to cancel the season, which would be disastrous in a lot of ways. But, um, but I think, I do think that there's a lot of desire from everybody to, try to salvage whatever they can out of the season. And how do you think the fans would react? Would, would, would they say, hey, this is better than... It's programming. I, I think they don't care at this point. No, <laughs> no, Kevin, but what I'm saying is I've heard some people say, you know, I ain't going to really want to care about watching it. Man, and maybe they were talking more about an NBA because of an arena. But if there's no fans there, there's no atmosphere, it's, you know, it's like showing up at your local ballpark and, or your neighborhood sandlot. I'm just wondering, I think more fans would like it than not, but there's right. always going to be that certain segment that maybe after 10 games is going to say, really? It's not like what I'm used to watching. I don't know. I'm just. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, that's, it's, it's true. No, I guess, I guess we'll never know until we get it, get into it. But I guess my feeling is, is that people are just so starved, starved for it. Mm-hmm. And, and even if they're, I, I think there's just going to be a, a, not everybody, you're right, not everybody, but I think there's going to be a level of understanding from people of, well, it's either this or nothing. I get why there's no fans there. Is it as much, is it, you know, remember Bryce Harper's walk-off Grand Slam last August against the Cubs? Yeah. Imagine him, imagine him doing that uh, with no fans in the stands. Just, yeah. it, just it, rattling it, around it, the upper deck. Just, yeah, just, <laughs> just rattling around the upper deck. But I still think it would be cool yeah. Uh, you know, because Harper would still be excited. His his dugout would be going crazy. You think know, about have... some of the think about some of the new sounds we would hear because you would hear the the players saying stuff. Right. That we we yeah. never hear now. And, and that, was... And that was one thing I I had heard or read um, that maybe they would mic up some players during the game to kind of try to make it a little bit more interesting. They did that in spring training. Uh, for some players, I think Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo with the Cubs, they mic'd up both of them for a game. Right. And it was very entertaining. It was very insightful. Um, you know, you couldn't, you know, maybe you mic up the manager and the pitching coach and they pick out different parts that, that, you know, they would want to put on the air, but there are some ways that they could do it to make it interesting. And I guess, and I also think from a player's point of view, from a union point of view, they would understand that and maybe be more open to being mic'd up for games. If they, yeah. if it means, I think everything's on the table. Yes. Yes, I, I do. Yeah, you're right. I think everything is on the table. I don't think any, any idea really is too crazy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, Zach, you know, like, like Zach Wheeler said the other day, his wife is pregnant in June, July. He's like, I'm not going to miss the birth of my child, which is totally, I totally. And totally Mike Trout, understand. Mike Trout's the same way. Mike Trout has mentioned that about his first child coming in July, I think. So, right. So, and so people say, well, what would they do? Not play a season with Mike Trout, but maybe, you know, in and out like a yeah, quarantine maybe, period. Yeah, Like maybe, maybe he leaves a few days early before the birth of the child. He spends some time with his wife and his child, which, which is totally, understandable and, and, and they should do, but then maybe when it's come, when they're ready to come back, they would have to go into like isolation for 14 days and make sure that they don't have COVID. And if they don't have COVID then they could rejoin the team at some point. So, you know, currently right now, I think you get three days of paternity leave. So instead of maybe three days missing three games, now maybe you missed 20 games. Now, if it's an 80 game season, that's a quarter of the season, but 
hey, 60, 60 games of Mike Trout and 60, you know, 60 games with Zach Wheeler is better than zero games. And Kevin, who we had last week on one of our things. But didn't we talk about the fact that this is a year where they could try a lot of stuff? Yeah, you could try different things. You could try the seven-inning doubleheader. You yes. Can, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's all in the mix. I want to, Before we get – I want to talk to you about the book, but I want to ask you, you were sure. in Clearwater when this all went down, and the beaches are mobbed, and <laughs> people were going out. I was down there early in the month, and even then you could sense that something was a little off because they had the news reports about – cases down there that had just started to crop up in the Clearwater area or the Tampa area. What was that like, Uh, you know, being away from home while all this was breaking out? It it was, it was strange and and unsettling as an, as it kind of, as the, as the weeks kind of grew, because when, when camp first opened, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't, I was, I was following it, but I wasn't really thinking about it. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't like worried about it you know, the, the possibility of the baseball season being postponed or canceled wasn't even like remotely on my mind. And then as things started to, to kind of build steam, uh, I started going, wow, is this, could they actually, you know, miss some games or delay the season? And then, you know, my, my family came down, uh, middle of March and they were supposed to stay for about 10 days. And then Mm -hmm. I think the second day of the trip, uh, it was when the NBA canceled its se- or postponed its season, right? And then I was like, "Okay, this is this is bad. <laughs> this yeah. is bad." And so I basically um, they they cut short their trip by like seven days, six days. Went got on a flight, flew back to Philly, and then a couple of days later, I, I you know the you know really that I think that at that same time um, they it was that Thursday that they postponed spring or canceled spring training and postponed the beginning of the season. And I was like, well, thank God we changed, we changed your flight. They flew back. And then a few days later, I ended up driving back with, uh, I was just going to say, what was the Salisbury drive back without a camera (laughs) crew? Unlike Patalico had going down. So yeah, yeah, you know, we, we made great time. So um, (laughs) Jimmy, there's this really good uh, cheesesteak. Yeah. Delco's in uh, it's in, they have the, uh, the little chain, not a chain, but the uh, second pl- second shop is in Dunedin. So Jimmy went that night. The guy made us made him made us a couple uh, Italian hoagies. I picked Jim. Jimmy dropped off his rental car at the Tampa airport at five in the morning. I picked him up at five in the morning out front of the rental car drop off, and uh, we drove straight through. I dropped him off at his house around 8:45 I pulled into my driveway around 9:15 at night so we we made it in one one straight shot we just wanted to get home we just wanted to get home and and we did yeah that and, that, that, we, I, and I have I barely left since <laughs> I was just going to say I've done that drive the fact that you guys did it in like 16 hours tells me yeah. that you were doing some land speed records yeah you know and actually <laughs> We actually could have, probably could have gotten back to Philly faster, but we made DC. We made a couple, yeah, we made a couple stops. Not even traffic. We just made a couple stops, and there's a couple times where we were looking for coffee, and we get off an exit, and we went the wrong way, and then we got, you know, then we said, so "Forget it, let's get off at the next exit." You know, so we had a couple of those moments. If we hadn't done that, we probably would have been home an even quicker. Time. Wow. Um, yeah. All right. So the book's coming out uh, May. 20th right now uh the hardcovers uh coming out may 19th okay uh, that you can get it on kindle at amazon kindle like i think on may 5th it, it'll, it'll pop in your 
pop into your Kindle or whatever. Wait, what did you, what was, What's I mean, the title of the book, Kevin, doc, doc is the title of the book. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, there's a subtitle too, correct? Yeah. Doc, the life of Roy Halliday. Right, Halliday. Yep. And you got cooperation from Brandy. Um, a gr- correct. Uh, yes. With- I talked, yeah. I talked to Brandy Halliday, Roy's wife, uh, extensively, uh, on multiple occasions. And she really kind of helped fill in a lot of pieces and kind of explained, you know, what happened throughout his life, particularly uh, toward the end of his life and kind of helped, you know, maybe not answer some things, but just kind of give her opinion on some things and explain some things. Um, you know, there's always going to be some questions about, you know, the day that he passed away and the plane crash and whatnot and kind of what happened at the end of his life. But, um, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I can at least, I address those things as much as I could, uh, without him being here, but, you, you and uh, I mean, you covered them as tightly as anybody in, in Philadelphia. Obviously, I'm sure if you, mm-hmm. there's some Toronto writers I, I know that probably got close to him as well. But he always did keep a little bit of a distance, right? Um, what was the one thing that when you peel back the onion a little bit that you were able to to find out that maybe you didn't know? Well, I I think the thing that was interesting about him and helped explain why he was how he was, was he had a lot of, um, you know, he, he was really pushed hard as a kid uh, by his dad Mm -hmm. and his, you know, he really sought approval from his father and, and, uh, to make him, to make him proud and to, you know, just make him happy and whatnot. And he kind of carried that, that feeling, that internal feeling inside of him throughout his life. And so that constantly, not, not his dad necessarily, but he just, he just continually worked super hard. Like everybody talked about his work ethic, his work ethic, his work ethic. Um, part of the thing that drove him was that he just didn't want to let anybody down and he didn't want to let anybody fail. So, you know, it's, it, it, so it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a workout routine for him. You know, there was, there was a, a mental aspect of it as well. Uh, but there was, you know, he, you know, he was, he thought he was at the end of his rope uh, in 2001, when he gets sent down to a ball all the way from the big leagues. And, uh, you know, then he found the mental ABCs of pitching the, the book from Harvey, Harvey Dorfman. Dorfman. Right. And it, and it really kind of saved his life. It saved his baseball career, but it kind of saved his life in a sense as well. Cause it helped him kind of manage the insecurities, the self doubt, the confidence issues that he had. And it helped him kind of gain confidence by giving him a plan, uh, to compete. And uh, I thought that was that was interesting, so, and that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because I always I always thought it was interesting after Roy retired how he wanted to kind of carry on Har- Harvey Dorfman's um, message and, and life's right. work because Roy and I thought it was interesting because he had made like a hundred and fifty million dollars in his career. Usually, guys that do that they become. Mm-hmm. You know, they just retire and they're never heard from again, or they become like a broadcaster or they become one of those club ambassadors. You know, they shake baby, you know, shake hands and kiss babies types of guys, play, play a couple rounds of golf. Right. But he, he wanted to become a mental skills coach because he knew that there were other people struggling out there just like him. And, and in his mind, this is his way of helping people that needed help because he knew how much help he needed. And I, that, that part of, of Roy kind of fascinated me, you know, that he felt compelled to, to give back and help other people that were going through mental issues. Like he was, he was, uh, you know, 
in the years I covered it, I don't know how you feel. He was the deepest thinker in a sense of, look, it was tough to talk to him before starts and everything, but when you talk to him after a start and the way he could break everything down in a game and give thoughtful answers, it is that's all a result of what happened early, that, that, that he kind of studied the mind and how everything went with pitching, and you could see it as years went on. He's he was different in that respect than most of the players we've dealt with. Yeah, he was he was he was a super smart, super prepared pitcher, and he you know he just worked really really hard to to know everything that he could, and so he had an answer, and he he understood exactly what happened with every pitch that he threw and every result that happened, you know. On the field, you know, like one example I can that just comes to mind is, um, you know, when he threw that postseason no hitter against the Reds, he had right. nine days to prepare for that start, and so he felt he was going to absolutely dominate the Reds in that game because in his mind, there's no way that the Reds could out prepare him because he's like, I have nine days to prepare. I usually have four, mm-hmm. so now I have double the amount of time I can prepare. So he studied every hitter he felt like he knew every hitter and, and what they were thinking in every in every count and not only did he study every hitter he studied every pitcher that he thought could hit so i don't know if you remember this but i think it was edison Volquez started that game he, yep. he got knocked knocked out relatively early and i think it was travis wood ended up uh, second or third inning yeah second or third inning hit a rocket to right field well now Doc didn't make a good pitch in that spot, but he had he had actually studied Travis Woods at bats because he thought in a, in a situation where Volquez gets knocked out of the game early, they'll put the lefty Travis in. Would, yeah, Travis Wood would be the most likely guy to come in, and wow. if he comes in, he's going to hit. So he, he didn't just study Roland and Jay Bruce and Joey Votto and Brandon Phillips. He studied Travis Woods at bats. <laughs> You know, it's Travis Wood was actually a decent hitter for a pitcher, too. That was the thing. Yeah, but I mean, like just the but the idea that, yeah, you're you're taking on another level there. It's 40 chess. Yeah, he is thinking on a totally different level. Uh, You know, Roy on flights, uh, he would have two iPads. He every every player at big leagues, they get their own row. Right. And he would have he would have two iPads on the on the tray tables in front of him. The one on the left would be the hitter that he's studying and his last 20 at bats against right-handed pitchers. Okay. Uh, the iPad on his right would be that hitter and his last 10 at bats against Roy Halladay. And so he would compare, he would go back. Okay. This is what I did against this guy. The last 10 times I faced him. And here's what this guy has done the last 20 times he's faced a right-handed pitcher. So he could see, Oh, okay. This guy's moved up a little bit in the box or moved a little bit closer to the plate. So now if I have to throw this pitch in a certain spot, I might have to adjust a little bit. And then, he also had his notebook spread out in front of him as well. So while most players on flights are playing cards or watching movies or sleeping or just hanging out and BSing, right. Roy has two iPads out, his notebooks out, and he is studying. He is studying everything he can because in his mind, if he prepared, he needed to feel prepared when he stepped out of the mound to feel confident. If he, did, if he felt like he cheated himself, then he wouldn't feel he could go out and pitch successfully. But most of the time – he always felt like he had prepared himself the way he needed to be prepared. Uh, so the thing I always, that struck me and you guys were down there all the time. So was his work ethic of showing up like, you know, what, like five, five thirty, 
like for spring training when everybody else. Oh, yeah. It's just amazing that a guy would have that mental. You know, we see it in some athletes. I mean, Tiger Woods is notorious for getting up that early in the morning, or Rory McIlroy. But he really, and he he enjoyed that, right? He enjoyed being there six o'clock. He felt that he, that's what he needed to do to be ready to go and 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 to be at his best come July and August on a, on a hot summer night in Cincinnati or mm. or Texas or wherever. He needed to go through those workouts. In fact, his first spring training with the Phillies. Uh, I think it was his first bullpen session, his first up-down, which is basically, you know, you throw for, you know, 15 pitches, you sit down pretending like it's a break between innings, and then you go out and throw again. And uh, in between his up-down, um, Dong Lean, who was the strength and conditioning coordinator for the Phillies, he saw Roy doing uh, lunges in between the up-downs, and he went over and goes, Doc, uh, you know, why are you doing these lunges? And he said, well, I'm trying to mimic how my legs might feel in during the season. So this, so he basically was trying to make his legs feel like jelly. So if he, so when his legs felt like jelly, he could fight through it in August, he'd be like, I did this already on February 13th. I'm fine. I I can get through this because I, because I've prepared for this moment. So he, those are the types of things that, that he would do at all times. Even in another good story that I, that I have in the book is um, after his Cy Young season, 03 he, uh, with the blue Jays, he wanted to make sure he could repeat. And he thought he was losing a little bit of strength late in that 03 season. So he basically would wake up, he would drink protein shakes all off season, which is not unusual. But the unusual part is that he told the blue Jays strength and conditioning quarter. He's like, Hey, um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to set my alarm for around midnight or one in the morning and I'm just going to go down to the kitchen, chug a protein shake and go right back to bed because that was his way of making sure he got all the calories he, he could get. And he figured, Hey, here's, here's this time of day, this big chunk of the day when I'm not doing anything, why not space it out? Up? Yeah. Why not just wake up, mm-hmm. chug a protein shake. So I know that I did it. And so then during the day, if I forget or whatever, I'm already ahead of the game. I mean, that's that that's the type of dedication that he would have with everything just to make sure he was prepared to pitch uh, on opening day. And then the last day of the regular season. And then in the postseason. what if I get up at midnight and just have a regular milkshake? (laughs) That doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's not quite as effective. I've I've done that. I'm sorry. Uh, So everybody looks, you know, you you think about the perfect game in Miami. If you're thinking about it, it's Philly square, perfect game in Miami, the playoff, no hitter against the reds. To me, the one game that defined him, was the final game of the 11 season because he battled yep. his ass off that night. Him and Carpenter, who were buddies and everything, he he pitched so well that night, and he was running on fumes at that point. After a Kevin, couple- what, what inning was it? The seventh inning or the eighth inning when the Cardinals had all kind of runners on? I think it was the seventh. I think it was the seventh. I mean, how much uh, – did you talk to anybody about that night? I mean, him and Carpenter especially uh, yeah. being – buddies but like they never neither one of them were really the same after that game they weren't in fact that's where Roy kind of uh Brandy had revealed to me that that's the game where uh Roy basically blew his back out in that game he felt a pop in his back during during that start and um you know everything kind of went downhill from here but yeah I talked with Chris Carpenter about it you know I, I read um I talked to you know other people about that start and just you know he left everything out there that game. He wanted to win that game so badly. And in the, in the, in the vision I have 
um, of that game is, you know, 25, 30, 40 minutes after the game. Still in uniform. Still in uniform at his locker. Just could not bring himself to take off the uniform. He just could not believe that they had lost and that they had this great rotation, historically great rotation, um, and were knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I talked with Chase Utley about that game, and he, he had a similar memory or vision in his mind from that, that game. And that was afterward, before Roy made his way into the clubhouse, um, Chase was walking up from the dugout and saw Roy basically. He was sitting on the ground in one of the hallways, just like just sitting there by himself, kind of collecting his thoughts. And he said he just, he just felt so bad that they could not get it done for him. Um, you know, because players – you know, Jason Worth said in 2010 when they clinched the division, Roy was on the mound that night in D.C. Yep. They waited to pop champagne bottles. And until he got back. Why they wait, yeah, until he got back. Is, is it, he, in his mind, he was like, we love this guy so much. We see, we see how hard he works every time he goes out and pitches. It just wouldn't have been right to like start popping champagne without him being there to, to pop the first to pop the first cork, and that's how much guys respected him, you know. And that and those feelings didn't change or haven't changed, you know, even after the way that he, you know, even after the way he passed away, they still everybody that I talked to that, that played with him still speaks, you know, reverentially about about him and just the way he went about his business. And so we should point out, I mean, and this I'm not going to name names, and I'm sure you, you don't want to name names either. Not everybody stuck around that night, like. Right. Not, I mean, there were people literally like the doors were open and you could pass them on the way out, you know, with their bags packed. Right. Yeah. The 2000, yeah. The end of that 2011, yes. You know, 2011. Name some names, Kevin. Come on, man. (laughs) So you want to go? (laughs) There are some players that, that were just quick to, uh, didn't seem to be as broken up about it as, as Roy was. I mean, Roy was, Roy was devastated, you know, and, and a lot of other players were, yeah, devastated as well. But but Roy, you know, to lose one nothing, to lose to his best friend. I mean, that was his best friend in baseball on a first um, inning triple, basically on a first inning triple. And you know, um, Shane Victorino doesn't miss the cutoff man there. Maybe that run doesn't score. I mean, who knows what happens? You know, Chase Utley has healthy knees. Maybe that ball gets out uh, in the ninth inning. The Banyas you know, then hit it into the teeth of the wind in the eighth. Yeah. Exactly. That ball landed just short of the wall. Yeah. Um, you know, so who knows what happened? Who knows what happens? So uh, it's crazy. Todd, Todd, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, hope you and the family are well. Uh, Doc, the, the life and times of Roy Halliday. Uh, I would say Amazon's probably Amazon or Kindle. The way you online buy books is probably the best way to get it. At this right. Point. Yeah, I know. Because I, ha- I had some book signings scheduled for late May, but I don't think they're happening right now. It'd be it'd be great if they were they they would happen. But everybody comes in happen. a hazmat suit and brings yeah, the book exactly. in front of Todd in his bubble, and yeah, we can we can have hermetically books se- yes. hermetically sealed bubble. We'll make it happen. It's it's like two thousand one, where like you know you go into like different chambers or something. So exactly, Todd, appreciate it, man. Stay uh, safe. Guys. Stay safe. Hopefully, we'll have baseball here soon. Thanks, and Take good luck guys. with Thanks the book. For having me. Yep. Appreciate yep. it. Thank you, Todd Zalecki, joining us. There we go. Uh, hold on here. Let me pause. Our thanks once again to Todd Zalecki for joining us. Uh, again, Doc, The Life and Times of Roy Halladay coming out uh, at the end of May, around May 20th, as we approach the 10-year anniversary of the Halladay Perfect Game in Miami. Uh, I believe it'll be earlier in that weekend. That was an, 10, 
Has it been 10 years? It, I remember watching that game. You know what's amazing to me is that went up against game one of the Stanley Cup finals that night. Uh, Flyers and Blackhawks. Uh, it was the Saturday night of oh, Memorial really? Day weekend. Yeah. You know what? Because I, 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 I very rarely watch games from start to finish. That's not me. I, I flip back. I was watching something else. Maybe it was the Flyers. I, I have, and all of a sudden I turned the Phillies on. See what we, and I, you know, it's on the screen. And I, I happened to look up and saw no hits, no anything for the Marlins. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was like the seventh inning, six, seven, something like that. So I stayed with it. I'm like, well, I can't turn away from this. And I'm trying yeah. to remember. I think, and I, we were not in Miami for that one because. You know, being what we were at that time, a lot of resources went towards um, yeah, the, the Stanley Cup finals. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I, I remember. Still remember the last play? The third baseman made a really good play. Uh, who, who, who was the third baseman? Juan. Um, oh, oh. I, I can't think of his name. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I'll but, look but it, it up. A, it was a really underrated good play. You know, he had to go to his la- left hit the ball, kind of spin, and throw the guy out. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Wilson, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, and, I, didn't, and didn't the catcher make a really good play, too? Well, no, that was in the perfect, or that was in the playoff no-hitter. In the playoff no-hitter, okay, I, I, I get him confused. Yeah, the playoff no-hitter, like, the the Ruiz play is so, is so difficult, and I don't think people yes. understand that because the bat then creates a big, a big problem. Yes, uh, yes. right, right in front of him, uh, Juan Castro, I believe. Juan Castro and Wilson Valdez is the other one. So yeah, Juan Castro played third base, and I believe Polanco was hurt on that evening. Okay, okay, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it, uh, watching him every night in some form for those four years. And it was tough to watch in 2013 because we knew it was the end and it, it happened so quickly. Um, yeah. It just, it, it, he was incredible and he was as good a professional as you could get. Um, you know, nine innings, he had 11 strikeouts that game. I mean, his ERA dropped the one nine, nine after that one. I mean, it's just incredible what he was. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you you get that that era where you covered that team from like oh seven. Oh, so much fun. Well, but you had, you know, you had the three of the Phillies' best players at their position playing in the history of the franchise. You can make a case that Ruiz, you know, best catcher, one of the Phillies' best catchers. Um, and then you get a guy like Halliday comes along, you know, to kind of top that off. You can also make the argument they have the second best left-hander in franchise history with with Hamels in that group. Yeah, Chris Short was pretty good, but I wouldn't. He's in the conversation. Good. Yeah, oh, no, definitely. I mean, you know, and it's a short conversation. Yeah. And the, the shame of that, not the shame of it, that's a bad word. But when I look back at that, and I think when people always look back at that, is that they only won one World Series. And. They did get to two, which I think is a hard thing to do. They got back-to-back. And that's the problem. Whenever I hear people talking about Philadelphia teams in the context of championships, yeah, and I'm like, whoa. Like, tell me when in the history of Philadelphia athletics that's happened. The Sixers back in the late 70s and 80s won one time. All those great Philly teams at the end of the 70s and into the early 80s won one time. 
Um, the Flyers yeah, yeah. won the two, but the Flyers did win the two, and the Eagles won two in the late forties. That was a different world back then. Um, but it's hard to do. It's it's hard to win one. Mm-hmm. But it's and, and you know, like if if the Phillies had just if one thing had gone, like you said, that you know, two ten probably was the one that you really feel bad about uh, or worse about because by eleven they were starting to they were starting wall. to hit a wall. I mean, yeah. yeah, they play well and. The starting pitching was great. And look, if, if Lee holds on to a 4 nothing lead in game two, they probably sweep the Cardinals, or, and who or knows? they score a few more runs in that game. Yeah, they didn't score any more runs. Either. Well, yeah, their bats after game two went silent. I mean, the Francisco homer bail. They won the one bail, game on the pinch home run, right? By Francisco in game right. three, and that was right. a seventh-inning pinch hit home run. Right, right. A three-run home. Kevin, let me ask you this. If Howard had not gotten hurt, let's say that, and I know he, he, was, he was injured a little before, you know, and that – but let's he say took, he doesn't. He took two quarter zone shots the second half of that season, I believe. But, but let's say he doesn't do what he did on that last at bat in, in 11. Mm-hmm. Would they have been had a chance to be decent in 12 instead instead of what happened? Well, how it, you know, you're, you heard Todd talk about the fact that it, in that game is where he really started to, how he was developed his back issues. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. Could they have been decent? Sure. I mean, but. The Nationals were coming on. I mean, if you think about, you know, Strasburg and Harper right, were just right, starting. Right. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, you had the Mets who were pretty good, who were starting to gear it back up. They went to the World Series in 15. Right. I just think it had run its course. Um, okay. Do you think that, and I know they could And, and honestly, and, you know, and look, uh, I give Ruben credit for trying, but there was also a point where you had to say, and it wasn't all Ruben. I, I I should keep saying this. Yeah. It wasn't all Ruben. There was the idea of, well, if we start farming out some of the guys who are here, which I ended right. up doing anyway, but if you ended up starting to trade Jimmy, if you trade it Utley or Howard yeah. or what, you couldn't get anybody for Howard at that point. No. Yeah. Uh, or Lee. Then the worry was, well, nobody will be in the ballpark. They got victim a little bit to the sellout streak yeah. and tried to tried to see if the band could put it together one more time. And it just, when you do I, that, when you do that, you end up in a problem, which I, they've I been in. I still think, and, and there, there's no way they could have signed Jason Worth for what Jason Worth got from the Nats. I, I, and Jason Worth was never quite the same. But I thought he was such an underrated part of the when he was batting behind Howard, mm-hmm. I, I and he never really got the credit for it. I mean, he did because he got one hundred thirty million dollars. But, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I just thought when he left, I, I said, okay, that's going to hurt. But they were still good. They were still good. But I just thought if, if there was a way they could have kept him, but like you said, all the other guys were getting old anyway. So there was a point I, that maybe in '09 they could have kept them on a on a cheaper salary. Um, right. Before he got Scott Boris. Once Scott Boris came in, all bets were off. Sure. And I, I can blame the guy for taking $130 million. No. I mean, but, you know, I think I think at a certain point, if they had approached contract negotiations, maybe a little quicker. Right. But they were trying to get Howard done. And they right. were trying to they were trying to get Jimmy's contract was coming up. Right. And, right. you know, they also had Dom Brown, who they felt yep. was the next right. guy. And yeah, right. it's not anybody's fault in a sense mm-hmm. it's a collective fault you know what well, i mean um, i always thought one of the great things about the 08 team and i think 
most championship teams have this in common. They had Worth and Victorino who were making nothing, basically. Mm -hmm. And they were both important parts of the team. Not that they were the three stars. We knew who the three stars were, but they were really important players. They knew the role. They, and Victorino had some big hits in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, you don't – most teams have to have a couple of those kind of players to win titles. That's just my, my way of thinking. And, and it, it has to run its course. You yeah. can't keep those guys forever because they're going to get paid at some point. And it's interesting to me, like, we were talking about the – we were talking about the retired number thing, um, or, you know, in the intro. And I'll ask you. Would you have retired Roy Halladay's number? Me personally, see, I think it comes back to, are you ever going to retire Rollins, Utley, or Howard? And I don't, giving by the way they go by it, I would say the answer is no. Because I don't think that, I mean, Jimmy can make the Hall of Fame someday. Yeah. Maybe Chase, I, I, but I, I just, you can maybe, I don't think Howard will, even though he had five years that were really Hall of Fame worthy. Um, you generally have to have more than that. Um, but their rule is, that, you know, if somebody's making the Hall of Fame, they're going to get up well, there. And, so, and I appreciate that they have standards, high standards, absolutely. As opposed to, you know, I'll mention this: the Yankees retiring like Paul O'Neill and Tino Martinez, and it's like, okay, guys, come on. I mean, they, they were good players. Well, not Posada's their second best catcher ever, probably. So I, but I still don't think he's worthy of being up on that thing. That's just me. I, this is why they have guys wearing number 107 because they have no numbers left. Um, to me, no single if digits. Man, if you got Mickey Mantle up there, you can't have Paul O'Neill up there. That, that, that's it. But it's like all hall of fames, you know, there's always going to be Subjective. The, the lowest guy. Yeah. I mean, somebody has got to be that guy. I, would you, know. you, would you retire Rollins, Utley Howard? See, I think they're different than they are. But I still think I don't have any problem with them keeping the standards they have and putting them in the wall wall fame all together. See, I, I put them you, in as a threesome. Well, that's me. You you um, and I have a difference. I don't think you could just do wall of fame there. Like they're different than Mike Lieberthal. With all due respect to Mike Lieberthal, well, Mike Lieberthal shouldn't be up there. But that's but he, you can't give them the same honors they give the Mike Lieberthal. You know yeah, what I mean? You can't, then you can't. If, then, then once you put those guys up there, then you've completely changed what your retired number is. And I have no problem. Do you put statues up and without retired I have, numbers? I have no problem with them only having a few retired numbers. Some teams have fewer retired numbers. They don't. You know, I think the Giants don't have a whole lot. Um, the um, is it the Cardinals? Well, the Cardinals have a lot. No, no, there's some team, but like the Giants only have like like a select few. I, that's just me. I, I think a retired numbers. The Red Sox are actually pretty strict. Yeah, and, and I mean, but like, look, I walk in. I like the way Villanova does it with their basketball. They have with the, the jerseys. jerseys up there, but you can wear the number. Yeah, you know, you can wear that guy's number, which okay, fine. I you know, um. It, they, that's they, a college they, thing. That's not those a... three guys, Yeah. Those three guys are such a hard call, Kevin, because we identified them because they won the world series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I understand that. I mean, should Charlie Manuel get his number up there then? I mean, I'm just saying he's, he's the best manager probably in Philly's history. I, I'm guessing. Right. I, I yeah, he has the most, well, 
I think him or Gene Walk has the most wins. Yeah, but, but Gene Walk didn't win anything. I mean, you know, right. I mean, Charlie won something. And I mean, you can't retire I, Dallas because Dallas wasn't long enough. Dallas was only here basically three years. Yeah, as a manager, I, mean, Char- I think if you if you were grading right now, you would say Charlie's the best manager in Philly's history. Yeah, you know that, that's not a he doesn't have to beat out a lot of guys. Right, but, but you know, let me let me play let me play this game. All right, so you're saying likely no on them. I I I think it could change, but I think the way they have it now, they if they've set this criteria. I think they're going to wait and see maybe if Jimmy gets votes for the Hall of Fame. And he'll get some get, votes. Get, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, let, let's say, for sake of argument. Jimmy I don't rule out Jimmy getting in the Hall of Fame, by the way. No, and that's a long process for him because. It's got it 10 years. Even, it hasn't even started yet, right? Yeah, I think it starts two years from now. Okay, and then he gets, what, 10 or 15 years? You get 10. 10, okay. Provided you get 5% of the ballot, which he should get. He should. And Chase might get 5% of the ballot. I, I don't know. Chase is actually a big favorite among analytic people because of his prime being so good. Yeah. yeah. My question is whether, and it sounds strange because he played till he was like 38 years old, whether it was prime, it, it almost becomes like Mattingly. Those four or five prime years were incredible, but the rest of it around it, I don't know if he compiled enough numbers to, to make it. I mean, like, I mean, there's an interesting name you just brought up. I mean, is Don Mattingly more Hall of Fame worthy than Jimmy Chase or, or Howard? Well, then Howard, I would say, yeah. Well, I mean, Mattingly had almost a decade. He didn't have quite a decade. But he, he was injury prone team. about five of them. Yeah, but he had he had like five years where the numbers were just like stupid. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it, it goes back to that thing like when we were talking about football, like Gail Sayers for five years was as good as it got, and then he was done. And, you know, and the NFL put him in the Hall of Fame. Um, so I think their criteria – and NFL careers aren't as long as baseball careers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something to be said for that. I don't know. I mean, I would have to sit down and actually study the numbers more than I have. You would have a much better idea than I would. I think Jimmy – you know what, you know who Jimmy reminds me of? Jimmy reminds me of Barry Larkin. And Barry Larkin's in the Hall of Fame. Okay. I mean, I always go back to MVP. Boa. Yeah. I always go back to Boa and Concepcion in the seventies were the two. I can't think if there was a third shortstop, I'm probably missing somebody. They were great in the seventies. They were the standard. And yet it, neither one of them made it. Larry Boa had 2000 hits, which yeah. isn't bad. And Concepcion played on a team where he got overshadowed by a lot of guys. I understand all that. Um, Jimmy Rollins to me, I mean, how many shortstops did played from like 2004, like the de- let's say a decade? I don't know. What, what, how many shortstops in his era were better than Jimmy Rollins? National League, probably none. Okay. You can make an argument, Jeter. Oh, no, absolutely Jeter. A-Rod, when he was... But he was playing third base. He had moved okay. the third base at that point, yeah. And most most of A-Rod's shortstop was in the eight, 90s. 90s right? and early... Uh, well, he went to the he went to the Yankees in 04. So, yeah, I would say it's a fair okay. fair but I'll assessment. give you both those guys, but both those guys That's pretty are going in the hall. I mean, I would make I through. would give you an argument that defensively Jimmy and Omar Vizquel were were close. Okay. So you're basically But Jimmy's me- a far more impactful offensive player. Right. But you're telling me that Jimmy is basically one of the three best 
shortstops of, of his, his era. Yeah. Well, then to me, see, that's pretty much what a Hall of Famer is. I, yeah. I mean, maybe you have to be the best. I mean, you know, maybe somebody's saying you got to be the best shortstop, but I'm just saying is he's right. He's going to be really interesting, Kevin, because yeah. he's going to be right on that line where you can make a case either a little bit like Dick Allen. You know, you can sit there and look at Dick Which, Allen's age. It's funny you mention yeah. that because, you know, one of the things Todd mentioned about the different ideas that they're doing to fill the site, and one of them is who's the next retired number. MLB.com did a whole thing on who's the next retired number of each team beyond, obviously, Roy Halladay is going to be the next retired number for the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said Dick Allen. And he said that Dick Allen, if he gets elected this year, which he's up for on the Hall of Fame, probably will get his number retired by the organization. He's always here's, been here, popular with this thing. group of the – but here's the funny thing about Dick Allen and Dick Allen with Richie Allen. I yeah. call him Richie was my favorite player. Him and Cookie Rojas. When I, I would have been six, seven, eight years old, Dick Allen was great, but his time in Philadelphia was very, very, very controversial. controversial. Yeah, I, he left, he left here on bad terms. Mm-hmm. It was it, a lot of it had to do with racism. I, I, I get it. His greatest times in theory or with the White or Sox, with the Cardinals and the White Sox. Yeah. Um, I mean, he had he had, he was rookie here with the Phillies, I believe. He was, M- he was MVP of the American League in seventy one with the White. No, with the I White think Sox? it was two. I think seventy two. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just saying. I mean, if we're going to retire a number for those five years or six years in Philly, five or six, whatever, I don't know. Because I, I don't. But know. also remember that Dick, and, and you hate saying it, but Dick's also been in the organization here for a long time now. That's fine, but that's not where you get a number retired. I understand, for. but there's a there's a. I think those bad feelings, in a lot of ways, have melded away. Oh, I agree. I I agree. But what I'm saying, if he gets into the Hall of Fame, his number's going up on the wall. I I, I think it's real simple. If he gets in, and there are people that think he's going to get this, he missed by one, right? Yeah. Three, three years ago. Yeah. And and I think Dick Allen is one of the perfect cases of a guy you can make a case against. You can make a case for, and I don't think either of them would really be wrong. He's kind of right, you know. Yeah. Right. But when he was good. He was great. He was really good. I, uh, all right. So he would be the next one for the Phillies. Who is the next Eagle to get his number retired? I know it should be. Um, well, I'm trying to think who, who like, if um, wow. Um, do you want me to give well, my name? Well, wait a minute. before you do that. Mm-hmm. Let me say this: Pete Redslaff just passed away. Yes, great, great, whatever. When Pete Redslaff retires, see, here's what's wrong with Hall of Fames. This is my biggest pet peeve with Hall of Fames. So he retires in '66, I believe, or '67. Yeah, I believe he had 463 receptions at that point. I, I could be off a little bit. Which is like at, two good years now in the league. At okay. the time he retired, I think he was like third or fourth in NFL history in receptions. Right. Doesn't that at some point warrant you when you retire and you're Pete Retzloff does have his number retired, I believe. I no, he'll never get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And when you look at his number now, you say, oh, yeah, four. Everything has to be taken into context. You wouldn't put Don Hudson in the Hall of Fame right now. No, you but wouldn't. Don Hudson's probably one of the two best receivers ever to play NFL football with Jerry Rice. But he, he probably had like 400 receptions or 500 receptions for his career. Okay, who's your guy? Who's your Philly guy? Is How is Howard Carmichael's number not retired by the Eagles? Well, I was going to say that, but I thought it was. I know. Well, that, no. 
that that's so obvious it's beyond Alshon Jeffrey, know. I think, is wearing it now. Well, Alshon was, yeah, you're right. How many Eagle numbers are retired? Reggie. Okay. Uh, Jerome Brown. Okay. Brookshire. Benerick. Okay. McNabb. Who was the last one? Benerick. Uh, Benerick, right. McNabb. Dawkins. I want to say Pete Fios. Pete Fios? Yeah. 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 That might be. And, and, and Retzlaff. No. Yeah. I think that I might mean, be look, it. Oh, Steve Van Buren. Right. If, if how look. How Van Brocklin's number's not even retired. <laughs> well, he only played three years here. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem you have with some of these things is guys like Timmy Brown is probably a guy you could maybe think about retiring his number. I mean, LaShawn McCoy, at some point, no. you're going to have to nope. seriously think. Nope, nope, not going to happen. He's the, but, he, I, but he's the Eagles' leading rusher, right? That's great. Not going to happen. Okay, okay. Yo, you're asking me who I... What no, I, I know. I'm just telling you, I don't think it'll happen. But go ahead. What they should do this year, if the Eagles were smart and there's an NFL season, why not retire Carmichael's number this year since he's going into the Hall of Fame? I agree. All right, I mean, here we wouldn't that the day after he got inducted, shouldn't the Eagles have come out with a press conference to announce that? You would think McNabb, Van Buren, Brian Dawkins, Brookshire, Pete Retzlaff, Chuck and Eric, Al Wister. Yeah, he yeah he was he was good. Reggie White, Jerome Brown. Uh, Van Buren was fifteen. Retzlaff was forty four. What number was? Um, Rookie was forty. Forty. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Wister is seventy. Yeah. Reggie is 92 and Jerome's 99. Yeah. Um, and, and did you say McNabb also? McNabb five. Yeah. McNabb, yeah. I mean, at some point. Would you retire McNabb over Cunningham? Yes. Okay. I think McNabb had a better career than Cunningham. Okay. I, I hear all these people all the time tell me about Randall never won a playoff game. Okay. He, he, he had some tremendous years. McNabb for a decade had the Eagles as one of the best teams in the NFC in, mm-hmm. in all football. Um, and we only remember the fact that he lost those games. Um, that that may be, and he may be an idiot, but I think McNabb had a better career than Randall Cunningham. That doesn't mean that there were times in Randall's career, where, you know, when he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the ultimate weapon and all that stuff, but his biggest moment of his career was when he went to the Vikings. Yeah. All right, so – you know, I think Harold should be the next one, but that's me. All right. Harold should have been five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The Sixers have retired seven numbers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Barkley, 34. Yeah. Cheeks, 10. Yeah. Wilt, 13. Right. Doc, 6. Right. Uh, Bobby Jones, 24. Yep. Billy Cunningham, 32. Hal Greer, 15. Who should be next for them? Oh, and Allen Iverson, too. Uh, yeah, I, I would have said that. So Alan. that's eight. Um, two, uh, wait, excuse me. Moses, number two. Yeah. They have ten. Boy, they're, and, the, and the Sixers' own webpage is wrong. Yeah. Two, yeah. two for Moses, three for Iverson, four for Dolph Shays, I believe. That's that's correct, yeah. Six, see, ten. Most of, most, of, most of that was with the Warriors, I thought. Yeah. I mean, see, people retire numbers for, I mean, like I said, I'm not saying Moses shouldn't have his number retired. He was here four years. It is Dolph Shays, by the way. Go ahead. Yeah, Dolph Shays. And I'll bet you that Dolph Shays didn't play much for the Sixers. I would, I, I'm willing to wager money on that. 
I mean, he was a warrior. He was a warrior. So he would be part of the of their franchise more than. But well, with Sar- he was also with Syracuse actually. That's he played one year with the Sixers. Oh, 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 oh! You're right. I'm wrong. I apologize. You are. You are totally correct. played with Syracuse. That's our franchise. You're right. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a guy who would have been Andrew, Andrew Tony. Tony. Yeah, Andrew Tony. People that never saw Andrew Tony do not understand how good he was. How good him and Cheeks were. And a foot injury cut his career short. The Celtics couldn't didn't know how to deal with him. Number twenty two, he could shoot. He averaged like twenty, and he could defend. Um, he was great. He was, and, and you know, unfortunately, he only played about five six years. Um, you know, uh, him and Cheeks, one of the more underrated backcourts in NBA history. I would agree with that. See, that's the thing. It kind of shows how bad this era has been for Sixer basketball. You think? <laughs> that Iverson is the only one beyond, well, beyond, beyond Barkley. Beyond Barkley, you can make a case for. Kevin, I don't think there's anybody else who I would, whose name I would use. The, the two names I would probably bring up are Embiid and Simmons, and they got to play another six, seven, eight years. Uh, there's nobody. I mean, how bad has this franchise been? <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and now, you know, they're finally they had two 50-win seasons in a row, and they, they probably would have had a 50-win season this year, and uh, now we're unhappy for different reasons. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Flyers have six retired numbers. Okay, let me see if I can do this one. Uh, the, the, Clark and Bernie. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. Shiro? No. They didn't put Shiro. Okay. Barbara. Well, they also have an Ed Snyder one up too, but okay, okay. Barbara would be three. That's three. Um, Hal, four. Uh, who wore number two? Lindros, eighty-eight. Yep. So I need one more. Yeah. Uh, how about the um the 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 the, the right wing shooter, the good shooter had all the goals. Reggie Leach. No, In- no, no. The the more modern one. John Leclaire. John Leclaire. John Leclaire is not it. Correct. Wow. Reggie Leach is not correct. Barry Ashby is the last one. Well, Barry Ashby because of what happened. Yeah, and, and he. Oh, I doesn't Leclerc have to be on there? He was great. Yeah. I'm I missing no because I'm not a hockey guy per se, but he was really good for a long for now, a long time. The Flyers policy is kind of what similar to the Phillies that you have to except for obviously Barry Ashby. Sure. Um, you have to make the Hall of Fame. Um, okay. okay. I would. I'll give, you an- I'll give you another one. I'll give you a good one. You and I may share this one because I. Go ahead. Well, you give me your. You, I'll tell you if you're right. Ron Hextall. That wasn't the one. Uh, maybe. I don't know if he had a long enough shelf life. Pelly Lindbergh probably would have been. You can't. But, but you anti- can't. No, 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 no. You can't. I'll give you one. Rick McLeish. If you look at Rick McLeish's numbers and Bill Barber's numbers, now one was a center and one was a wing, they are almost identical. They're very, very, very close. Right. One is in the NHL Hall of Fame, and one is not even got a Flyers number retired. And Rick passed away, I believe, about a year or two ago. Yeah. And I think he was he, – he's one of the forgotten Rick is in the too. Flyers Hall of Fame, I believe. Oh, he yes. should be. I mean – but I'm telling you that, that he was 
He had the game-winning goal against the Bruins. Bruins in '74. Not, not that you should get in for scoring the game-winning goal. In a, in, no, but mean, but he has a significant role in organization history. Absolutely. His numbers. I'm telling you, you put his numbers and Barber's numbers. Now maybe a center's numbers are supposed to be better. I I don't know this, but the numbers are almost. They're very much in the ballpark, and yet Barber I think is regarded one way, and and Rick kind of. Not the same for whatever reasons, I don't know. I'll make my argument on Hextall because Hextall won one of four Smythe trophies that this organization has won. Um, you know, he won it, him and McLeish, won, or I'm sorry, him and uh, Reggie Leach won it as um, losing teams. Both as losing teams. Both as losing teams, but... But how long did he play, Kevin? I, I don't think his, his, his shelf life... Well, 87 to 92. See, that's not enough. And then... And then... Yeah, that, Back here count. for 95 through 99? That don't count because he wasn't that good then. Oh, he was pretty good in 97 when they went to the finals. Yeah, okay. I know. He was he was better than I think people give him credit for. You you could make a case he's the second best goalie. Goalie in flyer history. Yeah. But I'm uh, not even yeah, sure it's yeah. that close, to be honest. I, I wouldn't argue with you, I guess. I mean, I would have, but I'm telling you, you look up Rick McLeish's numbers and Bill's numbers. And there's not. That and you're much right. John LeClaire probably. Oh. John LeClaire probably will end up getting in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame at some point. I would hope so. I mean, he. I don't remember exactly what his numbers were, but I know. Yeah, fifty for, goal seasons. Go ahead. I'm, I'll look no, this he had up. Fifty goal seasons for a multiple part of it. For a better part of a decade, which is always my benchmark, he was like a 40, 50 goal scorer, like almost every year. He played 16 seasons. Right. Okay. He played how many in Philadelphia? He played 10 years with the Flyers. Right. Scored 380 goals. That's pretty good. 447 total uh, for yeah. his career. And that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, one of the great trades in Flyer history. They oh. got him and Desjardins and something else for, I don't even remember what they give up and I don't care. Mark Recchi. Yeah, I mean, and Desjardins was a great, was a pretty good player. Their best defense. You can make yeah. an argument he probably deserves a little consideration because he was yeah. really good for a long time. And did Mark Recchi win a Stanley Cup? Yeah, he won in Pittsburgh. That's what I thought, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he won in Pittsburgh, and then he didn't win it. Did he win it in Boston, actually, his final year? I think he did because I think we were thinking about having him come back for our sports writers dinner. I'm pretty sure he did. In, like, 2011? Right, I'm I'm yeah, looking at I'm did. looking at this uh, AS one AS two. I think he did. Yeah, he made all uh, Recky or Leclerc. By the way, made all star teams one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, eight times as a flyer in ten years. In ten years, yeah. To me, his I don't know what else you have to do. I mean, you know <laughs> that's. Pretty damn good. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, he, he would be him and McLeish and and um, Hextall would be the three names that I would think would be the next three that should be considered. Um, yeah. How many goals did I say? Three thirty, three hundred thirty-three goals for for him as a flyer. Yeah, okay. And 50 goal seasons in four straight or in three straight years. 95, 96 and 97. Yeah. Tell me how many guys had 50 goal seasons three straight years. 
Not a lot. For this organization? Not a lot. Rick McLeish may actually be one of those guys. I hate saying it. Rick McLeish had 350 goal seasons? Rick McLeish may have had 350 goal seasons, yeah. Yeah, I I don't remember. I just remember he, he obviously, Bobby Clark was on the, you know, was better than him as a center. I get that, but, you know. Hockey, so hockey reference, um, which is kind of like baseball reference. It's run by the same people, okay? List the top 12 all-time players in Flyers history. One and two are easy, okay? Perrant one, Clark two, okay? Based on analytic models, right? Yeah. You know who they have third right now? Lindros? Claude Giroux. You know, look, Claude's had, if you go by numbers and everything, and people will tell you An this, incredible career. had a very good career. It's just that the Flyers never did anything. And the knock on the on 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 Drew was that he never led the Flyers to anything. Yeah. Um, I thought he should have been the MVP a couple years ago. I thought he got robbed when they didn't. They, he didn't even make the final three. I don't think four uh, four is John Leclaire. Yeah. Five is Bill Barber. Yep. Six is Eric Desjardins. Yep. Seven Mark Howe. Yep. Eight Eric Lindros. Mm-hmm. Nine Ron Hextall. Mm-hmm. Ten Brian Prop. Okay. 11, Simone Gagne. Okay. 12, Mark Recchi. Well, look, Rick McLeish should be on there somewhere. That's just me. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they're using whatever they're using, but I think Rick McLeish was a pretty damn good player for a, for a fairly long time in this town, and he won two cups and went to another cup final. By the way, we were talking about um, guys who have scored 50 or more in three straight seasons, like John LeClaire. Mm-hmm. Tim Tim Curry did it four times. Yeah, well, hey, look, there's another guy. There's a guy who actually probably should have well, his shelf life been better. Great. I know, no, I'm saying it, it, it's a shame. He was. No, there was times when Tim Curry was tremendous. I mean, you know, I remember that five-goal game he had in the playoffs against, I think it was the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was the guy who would stand out in front of the net and tip him in from 20 feet and take all the abuse. You know, just take all the abuse of getting checked. He, he was a tough son of a gun. Uh, a really good player. 58 goals in 85-86 and 86-87 for Kerr. 54 goals in 83-84 and 84-85. Yeah. That's pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. Call I, up Rick McLeish real quick if you can. I got it. I'm just kidding. He has one fifty goal season. Right. Um, but it was In 73. Year. But how many did he have, like, 35 or 40 or more? Uh, 50 in 72, 73, 32 in 74, 75, uh, 38 in 74, 75. Right. Uh, 49 in 76, 77. Okay. He had 328 total with the Flyers. Yeah. I, I think Barber had, like, 350. You know, Barber was like twenty ahead of him or twenty five ahead of him, and you know, I'm just saying, we we I think we kind of put Bill Barber up there, and rightfully so. I'm not Bill Barber was a tremendous player. Bill Barber had four hundred and twenty goals. Okay, well, I'm wrong then. I thought it was closer than that. You know, all twelve maybe, years as a flyer. Yeah, maybe McLeish wasn't quite as good, but I just remember him on those Cup teams being a real big part of that. But you know what? They did that. That's fine then. You know. uh, there's guys who are going to get. I, mean, I had forgotten about Tim Carr. 
you're right. I mean, Tim Kerr was Tim Kerr was incredible. Just the injuries cut him yeah. down. He took a lot of abuse. Yeah, he, you know, he really did. But he he was he was great. So, all right. So that wraps us up for the for today. On Thursday, uh, we're scheduled. We always. Oh wait a minute! Before we go, go ahead. Did you see the thing about the NBA today? No. Supposedly, there's something out there that my man Anthony was going all nut nut about that. They're going to have another season of horse in July. They're looking at, cause you know, the NBA is, you know, their commissioner sort of knows what he's doing. <laughs> going, to, going to Vegas. Uh-huh. I think it was Vegas, but maybe not Vegas. And having playoffs like, or having to see like having a playoff and including 10 teams from each conference. And here's my only problem. And I, I can't be the only guy that thinks of this. So they were going, they, they didn't have like a, so, if you have 10 teams, it's a bad number, okay? So then they were saying, well, you give one and two a bye. Well, that leaves eight teams. Mm-hmm. If those eight teams play, you have four winners plus the two buys. Six is not a workable number. No, you Am have to I go wrong? to 12. No, what you do is you give the first six teams buys, and seven plays 10, eight plays nine for the right to be in the tournament. No. No, I, I agree. I'm just, yeah. no, my, Anthony, my head hurts from Anthony, <laughs> that Anthony, type of math. Anthony and Tunis were, were running this by like for 15 minutes and they were trying to come up with all these. And I'm thinking, dudes, you can't, you can't have a number where you don't have a two, a four, or an eight attached to it. It doesn't work. You, you have to come out with, you know, we got four teams left. We got two yeah, teams left. So, but the NBA, apparently, it's, it's at least it's being floated. Um, so There's a lot of stuff that's floating, and we know other stuff that can sometimes float too. If you know what I mean. Apparently, what they're saying is the NBA is really conscious of getting back, like where the NHL might just at some point say, "Hey, we can't for whatever reason. There's not enough interest." And I don't know. The NBA and the whole plan would end on Labor Day weekend, right before, before the, the NFL, NFL. starts. So it wouldn't interfere too much with the next season. I love the fact that the NHL has admitted that the days of the best of sevens uh, may be done uh, if they do come back. That uh, You mean even like going forward from this? No, 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 no. For this year. Oh, Kevin. Best of threes, best of fives. You know, look, everything. Except the cup final. The cup final has to be best of seven. That's fine. Everything is going to have, it's going to be looked at 10 years from now as not being whatever, you know, and everybody will understand that. There's no reason to have a nor the normal Stanley Cup playoffs are the one of the greatest things in sports. It's not going to be normal this year. It it, it can't be normal. Can't be normal. If you have a best of three and that's not fair, I don't care. Have a best, the the whole thing. Win two out of three. That's the whole thing is about generating revenue and crowning a champion mm-hmm. well you can do those two things and if, if you only can play three or five game series i agree with you that if they get to this the final the final should be seven i think um just to keep that much of it you know uh intact but hey look what are fans going to want if and when stuff does look we have to look at the real possibility that there may be no sports in 2020 I don't think that's going to happen, but there is a possibility. 2020. Even the, even the mighty NFL might at some point have to admit 
we can't do this, okay? Right. Or we can't do it the way we wanted to do it. Um, I don't know how it's going to go. But I, to me, if you give people something without damaging, putting people's health at risk too much, because there's always going to be a risk factor. No matter how we come back from this, there's yeah. a risk factor if I go to the ACME today. Yeah. Um, I say give the fans something. But you can't just, like Fauci keeps saying, you can't hit a switch and say, hey, we're all back now. No, you, you can't. And I wonder how the players are going. Like, I saw these pictures of the um, the baseball players over in, in Japan, and, and they, they were wearing masks. Yeah. Do you think our players are going to wear masks? Do you think LeBron James is going to wear a mask? No. Nah. Nah. Although there's a marketing thing there. Oh, of course. LeBron James masks. The... Like the like hockey, like goalie mask, right? Did you yeah. see the horse thing? No. Come on. Why? I, I'm just asking. You but you know the answer when you ask. I me. watched five minutes of it. Okay. So these guys were doing it from like their backyard? Yeah, with cell phones. Okay. Like the reception you and I have right now talking on FaceTime. Right. Is like a hundred times better than ESPN put on for, for horse. See, here's me. And it's not I, ESPN's fault. They tried. I, I mean. No, I'm not blaming anybody for trying anything. But I can watch the Food Network or PBS or whatever. There are some people that need to see James Harden lofting a three or whatever. From his driveway. From his driveway. And I think after five minutes of that, it just wears Although off. Although I got to ask, if you're an NBA player, like Steph Curry apparently had to go buy like a like a have a uh, a basketball court sent to him. He didn't have it in his house. Like he didn't okay. have a basketball net in his house. Okay. Yeah. Okay, like well. if you're an NBA player, like shouldn't that be part of the? Well, he's probably got a a gym somewhere that he goes to all the time. That under normal circumstances, yeah, I guess. Probably, I mean, I'm I'm just guessing. I I, you know, does every baseball player have a have a hitting cage in their backyard? I'm sure some a lot of them do. But does everyone? I mean, I, 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 I don't most of them are in warm winter, weather climate. So yeah, I would think yeah. well, see, I, that they yeah, can but, work year round. The one yeah. thing, and we, we talked about the NHL and we'll say this uh, before we say goodbye. One of the big problems with the NHL coming back at this point, these guys haven't skated in over a month and you're now talking, it's been extended through the end of this month. Well, you'd have to have a training camp like you're going to have to have with baseball. Boy, I'll tell you what, not skating for six weeks is a enormous thing for... Because even in the summer, they skate. Maybe they have ice rinks in their backyard. I don't know. (laughs) Are they all living with Santa Claus at that point there, Mike? I mean... (laughs) They're talking about every sport now, regardless of what the sport is, whether it's basketball, hockey, baseball, these guys are going to need like a month. Yeah, I mean that's what they're saying. With every not two weeks, only a, a month. month, and so hockey players are no different. I'm sure hockey player gets up on skates, and after two or three weeks, he'll he'll be kind of back to sort of normal um, with whatever it is he does. Uh, you know, it would be awesome if you could do if somehow we could go back in time or whatever, have like a dunk contest with Doc. Um, it, who was the guy for the Hawks? Uh, Dominique. Dominique. Like back in the dunk contest with Clyde Drexler. Um, I'd watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I, even if Clyde's 55 years old, I, 
Um, we should point out uh, on Thursday, uh, we are going to have Colleen Wolf of NFL Network uh, talk a little bit about the draft, uh, talk about uh, about everything going on with her from Los Angeles. Uh, she will actually be hosting earlier in the day on Thursday, so we're going to post it a little later. Um, just kind of a ge- uh, gearing up for what will take place the following Thursday with the NFL draft. As uh, the Eagle- the Eagles are going to screw that up, Kevin. Why they are? You know it. I know it. Whatever they do with their pick, people in Philly are not going to be happy. I, I can. I, I just know there are it. so many draft experts right now because there's nothing else. To there's do. nothing else to do. Well, thank you very much, Michael. As we wrap up another episode, thanks to Todd Zalecki for joining us. Remember, Doc, The Life of Times, Roy Howdy, on Amazon soon. We'll see you on Thursday, everybody. Bye-bye.